Hello and welcome to the Tez News Podcast with me, Dan Worth. Later in the episode, I'll be joined by Gronia Hallahan to discuss some of the main analysis content on Tez this week. But first up, I chat with Matilda Martin about some of the main news stories from the week gone by. Matilda, welcome to the podcast. Great to chat with you. Um, we're going to talk through three stories that all kind of link together, which is interesting. So without further ado, let's dive into the first one, which is a nice um, exclusive from yourself about how Nadeem Zahawi has asked staff at the Department of Education to look into long COVID and more guidance for schools on dealing with that. Now, that's something you've written quite a bit about. Tell us a bit about in the context of this, where does this come from? And presumably this is something that I guess they feel they have to do because it's becoming, it's remaining such an issue dealing with long COVID. Oh, yeah. So um, obviously I've been covering long COVID for quite a while in the education sector. So the data that came out earlier this month uh, from the ONS showed that the incidence of self-reported long COVID in the teaching and education sector was the highest it's been since records began. Um, so I think the figure is around currently 4.6% of the teaching and education sector um, have self-reported long COVID, which is actually quite a big a big chunk um, mm. of the sector. Um, even though the percentage itself sounds quite small, that's really about uh, kind of one in 20 people. So it's quite a, quite a big a big number. Um, so the unions have been calling for more guidance on COVID for a while. Um, they're not really sure where it sits for employers in terms of whether it should be counted as a disability or not. Um, and I know that employees have had numerous different experiences with their employers around this. Um, so there really has been a, a, an urgent cry for this for quite a while. So what we know is that Nadine Zahabi has commissioned um, some guidance and research around long COVID in the education sector. Um, we don't know what this is going to look like yet. Um, and we don't know how specific it's going to be, whether it's going to be looking at pupils as well as staff um, and what it's going to look like. Um, but yeah, we'll, we'll hope to kind of keep yeah. updated as we find out more. Yeah, I'm sure we will. And what was the reaction from some of the people you spoke to when they when you told them about this, that this guidance was, was being commissioned? I presume it was welcomed. Oh, yeah, absolutely. It's extremely welcome. Um, everyone, you know, has been crying out for something like this for a long time. I think the general reaction, though, is why wait this long? Mm. Why now? Um, you know, I mean, obviously, cases are continuing to rise, but I think this is something that the sector has been voicing as an issue for quite a while. Um, so, yeah, welcome, but late. Yes. Yes. I mean, I, I myself have written on long COVID almost a year ago now, but but similar sort of, there was a lot about it then and people were sort of saying, we need to, you know, recognize this and sort of, you know, understand it's not just going to go away. Um, obviously it's good that they are moving to see that, but like I say, could, this could have started a year ago and we'd be a year ahead, but um, I suppose we should at least appreciate something is happening. And I'm sure for schools and people suffering from this or people working with people suffering from this, this hopefully will give them some more clarity and guidance. Um, so that was a very interesting story and it kind of, uh, dovetails a little bit with another story you wrote this week on teacher retention um, and and sort of wider recruitment of teachers as well. Because obviously, you know, if people are going off and off ill and we need to make sure we've got numbers in the system. But as we know, teacher recruitment is is an area that's really struggling. Um, so again, tell us a bit about this story, some of the data, I suppose, and, and just sort of again, what does this, where does this fit in the wider recruitment issues that schools are facing? Yeah, so the latest kind of school workforce census data from the DfE, um, in, it last, it, it goes for the reporting year the year before, so it's looking at November 2021. Hmm. Um, and so if we think about the context of when that was, 
coming out of the crux of the pandemic, still a massive issue for schools, as we know. Um, the Omicron wave obviously caused a massive issue over, over the Christmas period um, and at the end of 2021. Um, but we would expect to kind of see some movement, possibly back to sort of pre-pandemic levels, which we are. So we're seeing retention rates um, for teachers who have been qualified for one year beginning to return to pre-pandemic levels. Um, retention rates were right up during the pandemic for reasons such as, you know, the private sector um, not being as... Um, uh, not the private sector not being as preferable, um, concerns about the economy. So public sector jobs like teaching were a lot more welcome um, for graduates especially. Yes. Um, so what we are seeing is we are seeing a slight return to pre-pandemic levels, but it's slightly too early at the moment to tell where that's going to go. Um, and I think, you know, we'll probably start to see more in next year's reporting data, but obviously it's outdated already. So it's yes. hard to kind of tell what's going on. Yes, that's a fair point. I, I thought the, the bit that struck me as, as one of the many interesting elements of this is where it said that retention rates, rates had risen for teachers between two and six years after qualifying, mm -hmm. but fallen for those between seven and 12 years in the sector, which made me think perhaps those people who've done a bit longer had, had felt they'd done enough to, you know, the pandemic perhaps had, had sort of solidified that sense of, I, I want to do something else. You know, I think I've done enough here. Whereas the people that have just started out, relatively speaking, you know, because you imagine you might be a, you might be in your third year when the pandemic started. Now you're in your sixth year, but you're thinking, well, I've just come through this bit. Maybe we're going to get back to normality. I don't even know if I've had enough of a teaching career to know what it's like because it's been so abnormal. And you know, they're now hoping for that period of normality that will make them stick around a bit longer. And, and again, you know, there's these things about a recession on the horizon. Everyone's saying, and and you know, and we're not economists, but you know, the the, the wider everyone knows the wider financial pressures everyone's facing and and you know sam friedman wrote for us recently that a recession might be the only thing that helps save the teacher recruitment situation so which isn't exactly the the sort of outcome we want but it might be what happens so there's a lot of moving parts there isn't there i think the sector like every other sector is, is really sort of in a state of flux and that seems fair to say don't you agree for sure yeah, yeah. That absolutely and also what you're going to see is you're probably going to see you know, the data fluctuating for a while because, like you said, there'll be people that are sticking around because of the pandemic, but also people that might have put off leaving teaching um, during the pandemic that planned to leave before and now now see as the time to do so. So, yeah, we're going to be seeing a lot of mixed, mixed stuff for a while. Yeah, definitely. And that leads us nicely onto the third story, again, written by yourself, a busy week for you, clearly, um, about um, the DfE announcing new measures to basically allow teachers from anywhere in the world to come and teach in the UK or in England, I should say, um, by having the qualifications they've received in their own country made equivalent to QTS, receiving QTS and teaching in England. That's a big change because and it, it's a bit of a post-Brexit thing, I think we can say, but it also seems like probably a little bit of a move to do what they can to find other ways to help tackle the teacher recruitment shortage because fundamentally, if you can now, any country in the world, someone can show they've got the right qualifications from their country, this new body, um, whose snappy name I've already forgotten, but it's something like apply for teaching in England qualifications, mm -hmm. is that right? Um, something like that. You can apply, get your QTS, come and teach. That seems pretty good. Again, you've, I know it's, it's a new story that brand new this morning, but again, is that is that basically the sum of it? Um, and do you think that's sort of something the sector will probably welcome? Yeah, I mean, I think I think so. Um, you know, as we know, as we've just discussed, we've got kind of another recruitment and retention crisis at the moment. Mm. Um, and having more teachers in the system is definitely going to help with that. Um, 
I think it's only open to a few countries at first. They're obviously kind of at the moment, there are set ones, but they're going to kind of on a, on a time scale kind of roll it out slowly. Um, but what we do know is that Ukraine will be on that list. Yes. Um, which, you know, given, given what's going on in Ukraine at the moment, I'm sure will be welcomed by the sector. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. They did say, didn't they? So like they won't then announce the first countries that this will open to, I think, in autumn 2022, which isn't that long away, really, is it? And then people will start applying 2023, and then I think they wanted to have it to everyone by the end of next year. So quite a short time frame. And this new body, you know, where are we based? Who will be behind it? And how I, I saw something on the release about how they're going to have to set up the right systems to ensure that people know how to submit the documentation they'll need to submit easily. Again, that sounds great well, in theory, but I mean, we've all been around long enough to know that government launching new digital services doesn't always go as smoothly as they like. And let's just hope that this isn't one of those things, but we'll wait and see. But I thought it, yeah, I thought it was a very interesting announcement. And I can imagine that, you know, overall, why wouldn't we want to potentially allow good teachers from other parts of the world, more than capable, you know, they receive the qualifications of their own country. They've proven they've got the right qualifications on top of that in terms of, you know, GCSE maths or the equivalent of GCSE maths. Why not? You know, if we're, if we're short teachers internally ourselves, we're going to have to find ways to do this. It might add a bit of interesting new viewpoints to schools, bring in new ideas, new ways of working, you know, might help with EAL students. Seems like there's a lot of positives on that. For sure, yeah. And I think, you know, as the GSC have said this morning, it's going to be part of their, they're able to introduce even more teachers into the sector and with levelling up as well. So all their agendas are kind of tied in, in one together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, we'll, we'll see, see what happens. I think what they've said is that you know, people that will be set up and get applied against the criteria, there'll be high standards to be met. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out and what sort of high standards they are looking for. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Some really interesting stories there. Um, they can all be found on the news section, especially at the TES News website or on your, I know you'll have been tweeting them, so on your Twitter feed, which is, again, remind everyone your Twitter handle. Uh, at Matilda Martin. Martin. There you go. That's, yeah, that's easy to find. Um, I'm at Danworth. But, um, you know, thank you again for listening. And we will now move on to the analysis section where I will chat with Gronja Nellahan. Gronja, hi. Welcome to the podcast. Um, great to chat with you as ever. And I'm sure listeners will be looking forward to it as well. So let's dive in with our first story, which is about stock schools. Uh, and what we mean by that is schools that seem to struggle to ever escape a sort of a poor Ofsted rating. Um, and it seems that, well, other schools, you know, obviously move between different sort of gradings. Uh, these schools just perennially are stuck, um, hence the name. So this was a report by the Education Policy Institute um, and Joe Hutchinson, who is their director for social mobility and vulnerable learners, uh, wrote a piece of outlining a sort of some of the key trends in, in their report, what they found, some of the reasons for why schools get stuck. And there's quite a few interesting elements of that, one of which was teacher turnover. It's often quite high in these schools. Um, what did you make of that particularly? You, know, you, you previously were a teacher. Can you see why turnover may be high in a school that does get stuck? Is it, is it quite demoralising when you never seem to have to, no matter how much good work you're doing, Ofsted comes in and for various reasons you end up with the same outcome each time? I think there's a lot of reasons why, why you end up with high teacher turnover in these sorts of schools and not all of them are the ones you might suspect. So mm. the obvious ones are, well, because it's a tough school to work in. It's It can be quite difficult working in a school with a low offset rating because of the, the dynamics, the pressure to, to turn that offset rating grading around means you might be under scrutiny for continuous mock steads. You might have a really tough um, senior leadership team who 
if there's lots of high turnover there, you've got people coming in with a big idea of how are they going to fix things and having to live through that, you know, this is the next big idea, no, this is the next big idea as they're trying to scramble around and find what it is that they can do better. So it could be a leadership problem. It could be a, an over-scrutinised problem, a problem being over-scrutinised. But you also get the fact that lots of people go to schools where you've got a low offset grading, a difficult school, you do a few, you do a year or two there and then you go on and do a different sort of job. So you only, you plan to go in and work there just for two years and make a difference. And it's, um, it's something you might do to have that experience of doing it. So you can apply for um, a, a more, like a promotion to say that yes. you've, you've been that, I've taught there. So there is that as well. And also the, um, I think in those sorts of schools, there's a reluctance to stay because you don't want to get branded with the title of, oh, I taught at that school for years and years and years. Like you go in, you work there a bit and then you go out. And that's, I think that's the other issue that we have with the way that um, these, these schools attract right. and fail to retain teachers. That is an interesting set of observations and, and certainly the numbers that were mentioned in the report and that Joe mentioned in her piece sort of show some of that because it shows that she says that stock primary schools lost 73% of their teachers over five years compared to 54% in schools that weren't stuck. So you can see it's almost like a, another quarter of your of your workforce is, is leaving every five years. Um, and and then she says that's similar for secondary schools. So there's a lot of churn and you can see why, for the reasons you outlined, it, you outlined there, if that's happening, you can see why it must, must be hard for a school to sort of really progress and, and, and fix problems. And, you know, whether, whether if officer identifies an issue that, you know, quite correctly said that that's an area you need to improve. Very hard to do that if people are just coming and going all the time. You never get somebody who can really bed in and fix it. And it's a spiralling problem, isn't it? The One of the reasons why we stay somewhere, why we stay in, in the same employment, and it's, this is true for teaching and for other industries too, mm. is because you feel like you belong. And when you feel like you belong, you stay. If you like the people you work with and you feel like a strong team and you feel like when you turn up to work every day, you're valued and appreciated and understood, that's not always possible if you have high turnover. So if each year you've got more and more teachers coming in, teachers leaving and instability, that feeling of being a team is very, very difficult to, to, to cultivate. And so therefore it spirals. And because people leave, more people leave. And because then most people leave, more people leave. And breaking that cycle is the toughest thing to do. Yes, yes. It would be very interesting to hear from a, from a head maybe who, who's, who's done that somewhere where they, they think they've, they've sort of stemmed that flow. And, and the final point I'll make from Joe's piece, which again, I think is interesting, is she, she points out that against, and this obviously feeds into some things we're talking about, is it says they also found their research that these stuck schools are often found in middle-sized towns and cities where they either have, they don't have the benefit of recruitment to, as a, to a big city, where a lot of people want to live and work, or in towns and villages where you have lower levels of pupil need because you have you know, fewer pupils. So you get this kind of the opposite of a sweet spot, you know, uh, um, an acidic spot, I suppose, where you can't... Um, you're forever just you can imagine your numbers are never quite oh it must be a recruit must be a real sort of pinch point and it's like oh we're gonna get the numbers in and again that adds to that everything we've talked about here this is the school version of jams isn't it they're just about managing mm. these are the you know just sort of muddling through nobody really talks about these schools because they're not one of the we really need to help this area like it's not the coastal schools it's not the you know these are the ones that don't get a hell of a lot, a lot of attention and they are the the just about managing ones one thing I thought was really interesting in this was the fact that the nearby schools Ofsted grading had an impact on these stuck schools. So if you're a stuck school and you've got a school down the road that's Ofsted outstanding, 
then it can be even more difficult because the parents have this choice of, you know, which one do I want to push my kids to go to? Which one should I apply for? They're going to go for the one that's offset outstanding, not for the, the one that's, um, uh, requires improvement. And th consequently, you always have families that are more interested in, in the, and more invested in the education of their children, opting for the better school. So therefore you've got parents that are more engaged going to the school that's already doing well and potentially parents that are less engaged sending to, to the other school, which is, yeah. you know, I think it's a really, the, the report didn't go as far as saying this, but I think is a really good argument to scrap the pub publication of offset grades. They shouldn't be shared. Mm. That's, that's obviously a big, a big proposal. And, and you're right, actually, there are, there are a few other things in the report that obviously we don't have time to delve into them entirely, but that was an intro. I'm glad you raised that. And the other thing we should mention is the report said that although there were, there were evidence of some secondary schools breaking their cycle when they joined a mat because presumably some of the sort of would they could that helps tackle some of these problems for primary schools it didn't seem to have any impact which you know we'll see some people will go against the kind of well supposedly joining a mat is better for schools and, and improves things well that the research here seems just not at least for these stuck schools again i'm sure there were people who could probably come up with some counter data and that there always is but it, an interesting point and one that you know again the, the rush the move to academization which is going to happen it, it seems um he's not a panacea you know there are things where it's going to be it isn't necessarily going to solve all problems immediately no that was really interesting it's, it's got a lot for us to think about the differences between primary and secondary and the what canonization and joining a, a, a big mat the differences that it makes for a primary versus secondary hmm. yeah well as, as you see lots to talk about there's a great piece from joe a really interesting report from the epi and they're they're sort of co-authors on that report uh Apologies, I can't remember all the names off the top of my head, but some, some great people involved in that and, and really appreciate the piece for Tez. So check it out. The headline is Stuck Schools, Why Teacher Turnover Needs Tackling. Definitely worth a read um, on this very interesting area. Okay, the second piece we're going to look at is it's a fourth, the fourth piece in a series. It's been written by um, a series of academics, um, Claudine Bauer-Ukraine, Sarah Bonetti, Louise Tracy, and Dia Nilsson, I hope I've pronounced your names correctly. And they produced a report a little while back about the impact of the pandemic on EYFS pupils, children. Um, and there were so many different elements in that. We sort of worked with them to say, well, why don't we do a little, a little series? Why don't we take different elements of the report and, and you can break down each one? Because it seemed too good a set of data and insights to just let be one piece. So they've been doing these pieces for three weeks and this week's is the fourth one in the series. And this has looked at the impact of the lack of physical activity during the pandemic and how that affected children. Um, obviously both from a sort of exercise and fitness point of view, but also the link to learning and how we know, you know, be good sort of good physical health and being able to burn off energy and all those sort of things link actually have to, we have a link to educational outcomes. Gronje, what did you make of this? Obviously, you know, you've again, been in schools, you've got young children, you must have seen the pandemic that finding outlets for them, for their energy was not only just good for their health, but for like then sitting them down and saying, right, let's do some times tables, let's do some phonics. You know, the two kind of have to go to yin and yang, right? Absolutely. And I thought the point about the penmanship was really interesting so that they saw that in handwriting, there was less children reaching the expected standard for, for handwriting. And we know that, you know, you've got your gross motor skills and your fine motor skills and all these things are linked up. So if kids aren't out and playing and using their whole bodies to play, and if they're not using things like scissors, which is another thing that the report picked up things and talked about that was, that was noted about the, um, about the use of scissors in small children, what kind of families had ch children's size scissors? You know, 
available. Like you don't, it's the sort of thing that we had in our house because I've got an older daughter, but for very small children, it's the sort of thing that you might have in the nursery, but it's not the kind of thing you might have at home yet, especially for families that um, come from disadvantaged backgrounds. So we have this uh, like access to materials in the home, lack of outside space, so many families don't have a garden to go and play in, or if they did, it wasn't always suitable. Or even if they did and it was suitable, their parents were working and therefore the kids didn't get a chance to go out and play in the garden. Going to nursery and going to their, their childcare each day, which couldn't happen during the pandemic, clearly has had a big effect on these children. And how we're going to, to counter that when they've gone back to school and obviously the first first year of their schooling is, being, is going to be, has been, not not as you not as it usually has been because the playgrounds have been like quartered off and only in access for certain parts of the day. It's um it's definitely something that we know even before the pandemic that play was being whittled away in primary schools. This I feel is the evidence we need to say, no, let's go back, give let we need to address this and actually say, one, children, there should be a legal limit on how much space each child has in a primary school. We have it in prisons, we don't have it in schools. And two, that we need a mandatory set amount of playtime for all schools because I just think it's too important to ignore. Yes. Well and the the authors of in this piece they all make the point, don't they, that you know the the benefits of exercise and, and, and so forth are linked to the well being and then that links to learning and you know, for these kids particularly they've had a stressful time if the pandemic has been a time of anxiety for them then of course we need to catch up educationally with them. But actually we also need to give them time to catch up as young children to play and socialise and have fun. And, and actually that will then benefit their learning. And of course, you know, it's very easy to see that in the, in the narrative of catch up and lost learning, which uh, is, is unquestionably correct. It's not just there isn't that situation or at least, you know, one would fully assume it's correct. Let's, you know, not, let's not, let's not assume everything, but it, it, it seems fair to say. Um, we must forget these other things like play um, and actually we can see it had an impact as well and it's, it's a really good series from these authors and there's there's three others that are worth checking out one looks at the impact on eal students one looks at sort of the longer term what the longer term potential impacts could be if we don't address these issues you know that, that affected the yfs pupils so um yeah really interesting piece there um and i think that sort of covers the key points there i think around that let's grow in listening as you spotted in that you wanted to raise just that when i was reading it the thing that made me i kept thinking about was your obesity piece that you wrote um november last year and i think read that with this again like people that are reading that the, the eyfs piece today go back read the november one like these things are all joined up these things connect you now when we look at the obesity problem that we've got in primary schools and what the what the data is telling us these things all connect up don't they Yes, absolutely. Yeah, the, the obesity data is really quite shocking, really. And, and again, it's always so, it's obviously just dispiriting in of itself. But what I always find so frustrating is that the story lands or the, you know, the, the news lands and everyone writes it up and you get all the sound bites and so forth. And, and you know, correctly so. Um, you know, I remember writing a long form piece, like, what can we do about it? And, and then the issue, it kind of goes away, you know, but it's all still going on out there. You know, these children are still out there not having a good diet, not exercising, not having time to run around. And the long-term social implications of all these, this, you know, I think they said the UK is on track to become the most obese nation in Europe by 2030 or something recently. And it's sort of, it's terrible, isn't it? And, and yet we're kind of, what's the long-term plan for it? Is there one? I don't know. I'm certainly be interested to hear from anyone listening who's doing active work in this area, no pun intended, to to address this with their with their pupils. You know, are you, have you 
boosted your time for play, for exercise? Are you seeing the benefits of that for their learning, to their well-being? You know, if you're listening and you do something like that, do let us know. Because it's always great to promote the positive, shall we say, the where places are doing these things. So hopefully uh, people are doing that. And if they're not, hopefully these kind of articles will kind of spur a thought of we need to focus on this as well. Um, so yeah, a lot there. We seem to have um, covered a, a wide range of topics. But Gronje, thank you as ever for joining us. Really appreciate that. No problem at all. Thank you for asking me. And thank you everyone for joining and listening and look forward to having you with us again soon.